0: Welcome to Alien Minute, the daily podcast where we carefully dissect the movie Alien one minute at a time. My name is John Engel. And I'm Mitch Bryan, and today we'll be looking at Minute
1: 81, which begins with um, Ash appearing behind Ripley after she's received some bad news from Mother and ends with Ash blocking Ripley's way in the corridor. And we have a guest today for this week. We're joined by Violet Luca. The digital editor of Film Comment and a regular contributor to Sight and Sound and Brooklyn Magazine. Hi, Violet.
2: Hello. How are you?
1: Great. We're so glad to have you here. I'm. A, I've been. I've been reading Film Comment since I was a kid, and I really enjoy
0: the, your podcast that you guys are doing. Great. <laughs> I just want to point out that Mitch was a kid a very long time ago. Yes, I know. I like I to know. mention that on occasion.
1: I would also mention that uh, the the. There was a podcast that I listened to not long ago that was dealing with Brian De Palma that was absolutely awesome, and everybody should go and listen to that. And it was really funny, too.
2: Yeah, that was a lot of fun, too. I'm glad to be here.
1: (laughs) Well, would you like to tell us about the first time that you saw the movie Alien?
2: Yes. So I actually, Alien. it's funny because Alien is a movie that it's like, I know I should have watched it a long time ago, and it's like always been in one of the things that I've been meaning to watch, but I haven't. I only watched it just for the first time last week. So, and I've seen Aliens and I've also seen Prometheus and, I, and it was like such a, um, it was a real treat to watch it uh, now and just to see how amazing the set design is and just how, what a you, it is a really unique and atmospheric uh, sci-fi horror film and it was, it was a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, and I, re- I really liked it a lot. Uh, even though it's essentially been spoiled for me uh, by many years of pop culture references and whatnot. so Yeah, but
1: yeah. the tone must have been a little different coming at it from those other movies, or, or, or am I wrong?
2: Yeah, that's what's, I mean, it's funny because it's like all of the, like, really none of the aesthetics of this first movie are carried over except for parts of Prometheus where they sort of like try and replicate some of the Giger stuff, but it's not even, or, or like when they're when they go back into, I guess, where all the eggs are yeah it's, it's it's very it's it's unfortunate.
1: <laughs> do you want to talk a little bit more about that? I'm just curious of of um well I, actually, given how much you knew about the movie, did anything scare you or you know give you a frisson or raise the hairs on the back of your neck or anything or was it pretty much just spoiled?
2: This is the thing because I knew so. It's like I knew certain things were coming. Like I like it's like okay. So I know that I knew that Ash was a robot, and I knew that John Hurt dies, and I knew like all this stuff. But when it's when I actually that was probably the most pleasant surprise is that you know it still was extremely creepy. Like when the face hugger first gets him and attaches itself, and he's just like completely you know that's like on the on the in the medical bay just breathing and it's so everything is so still and just so eerie yeah it's and also just you know shots of the um when they go down to the planet just how striking and this pervasive sense of them being totally alone in the universe and it and very like there's a desperation there that was not that was not spoiled for me. <laughs> and then also the final, like, Ripley's final fight with the alien where she blows it out the airlock. Again, I knew that was coming, but how it actually feels to watch it is so different, so. And it was still very effective for me. Like, it was, like, even though I, like, so, sitting on the edge of my seat, even though I knew what was going to happen.
1: Yeah, you know, that sense of, of um, unease that gets communicated by the sheer scale and aloneness of, of these, you know, seven people – cut off from everywhere. Uh, there's an article in the 1979 issue of film comment uh, where that is equated with the mysteries of eternity, the mysteries of, of life after death. And I thought that was a, it's a really interesting corollary that I never thought about it that way.
2: Yeah. That's an excellent point.
1: <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and I should mention that that 1979 um, issue of film comment is available digitally and we'll be talking about it more during the week, but I just wanted to sort of mention that and hope maybe some people will go down and go download that issue. It's an unbelievable issue because it also has Apocalypse Now and it has um, Andrew Sarris' Guilty Pleasures and it has a thing on Rocky Horror and it has a thing on Women's Weepers. Uh, it's, you know, typical film comment, just like this amazing this amazing mix of, of genres and, and and, you know, and critical approaches to movies and both popular culture and film history. It's, you know... It's awesome.
0: So go get it, people, and we can talk about it in a couple of days.
1: <laughs> All, right. Up. <laughs>
2: All
0: right. I guess we should get into the minute um, of the day today, minute 81. So we're starting the minute with Ripley. She's just gotten this bad news for Mother. Uh, crew Expendable, she's just found out. Um, and immediately, Ash reveals himself to her uh, there in Mother. Uh, what do we have to say about how this is put together, this reveal?
2: Yeah, so I really, I, I really, when I was watching this and before I knew that this would be my minute, uh, I really loved that reveal where he just sort of pops up behind her because it's exactly the same way that the alien pops up behind uh, um, Harry Dean Stan's character, Brett, when it, he's chasing after the cat. Um, and it's just so, it, it goes to show that, you know, the company and the alien are one and the same. They're a threat and, um, you know everything, all the rules are off and, you know, this accepted understanding of order is completely gone. You know, there's no more procedure. They're not just expendable. Um, but it's literally better that they're all dead. Like it's prefer- like the company just basically wants an empty ship to come back with this thing in it. And, you know, technology is not like mother, you know, basically being like, don't care is also sort of signifying that even their technology you know, really the only thing that they have to sort of control the environment to assert any sort of what's keeping them alive is not is also not there to help them.
1: John was saying when he was looking at the original script that um, there were the, the whole scene where Ash ultimately reveals that what's going on is, is gone. All of the exposition in grave detail <laughs> comes across the screen on Mother, uh, which is maybe not the most
0: riveting way of getting that information across in multiple different forms of the story that in the novelization as well, there's totally different approaches to how we reveal Ash's true intentions. I mean, obviously there's suspicion of them. Ripley clearly, you know, she says in the movie that she doesn't trust Ash to Dallas. So that seed has been planted already, but in other forms uh, in the screenplay and in the novelization, they talk, she, She kind of chats it up with the crew a little bit more, asking more questions about Ash, and it's all built up to a bit of an action sequence that didn't make its way into the movie where they corner the alien again, and Ash sort of warns it off. And this seems to be the final straw to Ripley that, okay, clearly he's not on our side, and she actually orders them to arrest him if they find him. I think it's interesting that they pared it down so neatly here. I mean, I don't think you need much more than her leaning back and him sitting there menacingly to tell you what the whole deal is at this point. And then Scorny Weaver's performance here. I, I wanted to talk about that a little bit. And then Ripley as a character as well. Her response is quick. She takes him and just throws him up against a wall without any questions asked. And you, you get the idea. You know, you've know, you gotten the idea through the whole movie, but now it this totally makes sense. She's wanted to do this to this guy forever. And now she feels like she's entirely justified. The shit's been stacking up for the last few minutes between Dallas and between Having to fight for control, having to uh, then getting all this horrible news for mother, it becomes a real raw response. There's no need to stop and ask questions, or no need for anything else. It's just straight up violence. Then she breaks down. Mitch, we were going to talk about this. I think she has this visceral reaction, and then she emotionally breaks down for a moment. This is a kind of performance that Courtney Weaver's giving here that I you just don't see very much in a genre film of this kind. Uh, would you agree with that? Yeah, I would. I mean, I think it's a, there's a there's a complexity that gets revealed
1: the whole movie is such a great minimalist movie and so even that complexity is is revealed in just a very short beat where she kind of loses her composure and realizes what a horrible situation she's in and of course it totally humanizes her and I, I think it's absolutely clear at this point that that she has become the protagonist of the movie
2: well and it's, it's also interesting because you know um, you get a sense not just of like a frustration um, with The situ like going back to this idea that she's frustrated and suspicious of this guy, um, who's not really a guy. But um, you know when he initially lets everyone in, and you know the the idea that there's this violation of protocol, and like it's sort of mysterious as to why you know someone who is supposed to be in charge of like the health of everyone on this ship, you know the the like she keeps reiterating what the purpose of quarantine is, which is like if if you let you know, if you're trying to save one life, you endanger all lives. And it's like, it's, it's, um, I think the fact that she sort of, her immediate response is violence is also that she, it, it, it makes her, I think, a very realistic sort of action protagonist because she's picking up on these clues. Like she's, she's someone who's always thinking and collecting and analyzing things. And so it's like, that it's, that is, the fact that that's her first response, you know, it makes it more believable that she could survive something like this in the end. I was impressed by that. So.
1: Yeah. I also noticed that the camera, once that reveal happens, uh, Ridley Scott switches to that handheld camera again and just kind of unhinges the reality of the place.
2: That, I think I think the, ca- the handheld camera stuff um, throughout the movie is really interesting, but what happens in the minute after this, I think... Uh, so l- amplifies it a little bit and it, it isn't you know there's always the argument. there's always this push and pull between like oh, a handheld camera is that making it more realistic, more like a documentary or is it announcing itself as being something overtly fake because you see the camera sort of like jostling around and it's drawing attention to itself And I think um, I, here at least it just immediately ramps up the energy and it makes it like, okay, this is you know, this is a life or death situation now. I mean, as if it wasn't before, but now now the threat is coming from somewhere, uh, you know, different.
1: Yeah. And I know exactly what you're pointing to. And that'll be great. That's going to be great in the next minute, um, because right now that camera still stays uh, unhinged and handheld as she leaves the she leaves mother and heads off to probably go get. She, she calls for she calls for Parker and Lambert and, and she's headed up the corridor and all of a sudden the
0: door slams down in her face. Yeah, I wanted to bring up this call to Parker and Lambert. It's something that I never thought about too deeply. You know, it seems like an automatic response to get a little backup here in this situation. I think it is, it, it's is—it's the last residual bit of the script and the novelization, the different forms of the story where she's calling, she's probably calling them, we got to arrest this guy, We get I need help, we need to lock this guy down. He's not on our side is what she says specifically in the screenplay, but um, it's a really important move if you think about it she I I don't think she's gonna be okay if she doesn't make this one quick call is she yeah it's a good thing she called for backup yeah because because the movie would have been over I'm afraid <laughs> so we're moving out we move out into the hallway we talked about that for a second She she's calls Parker and Brett she's gonna go find them I assume is where she's headed and we get a nice little call back here to an earlier scene with her in Dallas where she closes Dallas into the corridor by closing the hatch. while Ash pulls it on her. It's a scary moment. So, yeah, those doors coming down really
1: is an echo. And this is a movie that's made up of echoes. Um, yeah. One, the, the, we, we talked earlier about this wonderful echo of when, when John Hurt's character is seat sets up and he looks like he's okay. And everything is happy. It, it, it echoes the birth at the beginning when everybody's coming out of the cryo chambers and we immediately go to breakfast or we immediately go to a meal together. And this is yet another one of the movies, one of the keys I think to its structure, it has to do with these symmetrical moments and it, it's yeah. not overt.
2: Yeah. And I like the idea that it's like, these echoes are always like an inversion, like you say, where it's, it's the, um, you know, Ripley's not the one shutting the doors. This, the you know someone else's, and it's not to have a sensible conversation. It's to entrap her. It's to reduce her options. It's not you know. It's very sort of like she's. It's like almost sort of feral, where it's like she's an animal that's getting chased down these different tunnels and getting trapped, and you know this threat is coming closer and closer to her. Um, and yeah, it's just an interesting like these these losses of control or just taking something that. Other, be, that was, I would also have to say that was the other thing. Um, seeing this <clears throat> for the first time uh, that really impressed me was just how, you know, there's so many great jump scares in this, but they're all totally earned and they're not cheap and they're like very, like, they're always, even, again, even in situations where I knew what the big point of the scene was coming, it still was very effective because they were so well-constructed visually.
0: I was going to say this earlier when you were talking about having seen it, knowing so much of what was going to come. I was in the same boat. I'd seen aliens. I It's been in the zeit- alien. I've been in the zeitgeist for so long by the time I saw it. it, everything's so effective because it's, it's put together so perfectly. It's not a matter of the cheap jump scare that is going to be telegraphed. The next time you watch it, the movie is so immersive that every time I, I've now seen it, I don't know how many times every time I watch it, I'm still immersed. I still get the little jumps. I still feel creeped out by these moments. Uh, when we go into this close-up of Ash here, it's it's very effective. There's multiple things going on. that We go into this tight close-up. When close-ups are used, they're very sparingly used, and when they're used, they're used to great effect. And then I think Goldsmith's little music cue that goes along with it, no matter how many times I watch it, I still get the hair standing up. When we get this tight close-up of Ash, and it's the villain shot, to end all villain shots, it's it's perfect. It's He's so shifty and so disquieting. I'm just... I don't know. But no matter how many times I see it, it's still just as effective.
1: Do you think there's something to be said for uh, the fact that it's it's Ian Holm? It, he's English. <laughs> you know, he's not he's not he's not one of our rough and ready Americans.
2: Well, I don't know. I mean, John Hurt is also very sort of, you know, I don't know. He's he, he comes off as very friendly. Yeah, I, I think I think it's I think it was like a definitely like an acting choice. Um, and also, I think probably like a, a direction. Where it's like, you know, you see him moving so stiffly throughout the film and then there's the big reveal that, oh, well, he's not actually a person, you know, you you just, because again, it's like, even the way that they, even the way that uh, Dallas describes him where it's like, I've been on five missions with the same science officer and he was replaced with this guy. And it's the idea that it's not like, you know, the other guy was fired, he was like replaced, like a part is replaced, you know, it's like these little cues that it's like, something is wrong here. But you can't understand what's wrong until, you know, it's too late.
0: You mentioned his, you know, as a performance choice, his body language throughout the film up to this point being very stiff and there's something off about him. Is there a subtle change to his performance? Is it only changed in our mind because now there's been such a change in what we know about the character? But there's something about the way he carries himself, and it'll be just as much in the next minute as this one. Something about the way he cares himself that's just a little bit different from before. But I can't tell if it's Ian Holmes' choice, something subtle he did, or if it's just what we know about him. Uh, That's something we could discuss, I suppose. I don't know if there's information out there where Ian Holm discusses making any different choices here. But it is markedly different to me.
2: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think it's just, I think it's almost in the eyes where it's like, you know, she has to enter this code to see this information. And so it's sort of like a violation of this. It's, a, you know, it's like you're finding out this secret and it's a dangerous secret, but it's also the idea of like a transgression or, you know, just, um, you know, now she really is in charge. She is the most senior person on the ship. So it's, a you know, she's a direct threat now to mm-hmm. his authority or his ability to carry out his orders.
1: Yeah, and I wonder if in the internal reality of the movie, when she goes to ask these questions of Mother, Whether Mother pings the robot, you know, down the hall and says, hey, get in there. He certainly gets in there. uh, He's he's right on the money to be there on time, you know. He gets there very quickly and very quietly.
0: Well, he's pretty suspicious in the the last time we see him. And this speaks to what you Violet, what you were saying about um, her actually being legitimately in authority. He's never liked the idea that she's in authority over him. And when she's now, you know, when she becomes the captain of the ship, he won't even look at her. Like he in that previous scene at the table where she truly takes charge, he keeps her his back to her, he gives her a sarcastic salute. Yep. But I was gonna ask the same question, Mitch. I you know, based on that suspicion, either he's been following her. I think that, that that's a practical reading of it, is that he's probably well, she tells him where she's going. Right, right. So but I I did wonder too, because we've we've speculated on how much Ash knows what you know, what the connection Is there a Bluetooth connection here between Mother and Ash, or is it just simply that he has access to Mother? Um, But, yeah, I wondered this, too. He's right on the money there. Did did Mother warn him? But I think that probably the answer is that he just followed her there, waited to see what she'd find out. He was probably, there's a bit of, you know, we've talked about a mischievous glee that he has from time to time, uh, mostly about scientific discovery, if you want to read it that way. But uh, here, I think he wants her to, to read it so he can deal with her. Like I think I don't know if there's a program where he needs a bit of justification to dispatch of her. I guess not. But I don't know. There's some reason why he waits for her to get the information. He seems to be enjoying his work at this yeah. point.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, well, that, that's all I have. Does anybody else have anything? I
0: don't for this minute. Violet? Nope okay well violet you want to tell us where uh, the people can find you out there on the internet
2: well sure um you can go to filmcomet.com uh you can check out some things i've written there or you can find me on twitter at unbutton my eyes that's all
0: <laughs> of course you can find us at alienminute.com or follow us on twitter at alienminutepod. pod uh come over to our facebook page uh, the alien minute podcast uh join up there and join in on the conversation uh also we have a a T Public store, just go to Alien Minute at T Public and find our t shirt designs there. And of course, we uh, want to give our shout out to the Star Wars Minute, our mothership podcast. Uh, thanks again, guys, for loaning out your format to us for the show. So that's going to do it for minute number 81. We'll see you tomorrow for minute 82.